0: who has sold his soul to the devil in return for unholy powers. Or so at least some of our friends here would have us believe.
1: (laughs) Welcome to Filmstrip.
0: Fear not. Everything can and will be.
1: Explained. All mysteries. Penetrate.
0: Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay and I'm Kurt and this is our review of The Illusionist starring Edward Norton, Paul Giamatti and Jessica Biel directed by Neil Berger released in August of 2006 on a budget of 17 million dollars grossed over 87 million at the box office. Films released within a year of each other that are relatively I don't even want to say similar they're almost the same kind of subject matters you know so had you seen either of these before?
1: Uh, I have seen The Prestige many, many times, and The Illusionist I had seen. I saw when it was in theaters back in August 2006.
0: Fabulous. I had never seen The Illusionist, actually. I, I'm new to this. I had seen pieces of it, because as I watched it this time, I realized I had caught parts of it here and there. But I had seen The Prestige a lot, you know, Nolan fan through and through. And so I knew that one, but this was the one that I was really interested to to take a look at here. And, and I got to say, I... This is going to be a really interesting discussion because... I don't know what it was about 2006, but there was some fascination with stage magicians, because there's a third (laughs) film that if we were really brave, we could try to throw in here, but it's a Woody Allen film that came out a little bit before this called Scoop. That's much more of the comedy side. I think we're wise to go with the more dramatic tales, but there was something about Oh six man. Like David Blaine was big. And (laughs) I mean, I don't know what it was. The big stage magician was a big thing again.
1: I went looking to see how the hell these two movies came out within two months of each other. So which they probably were started at roughly the same time too. And it's just, I don't know which one came first, but I think it is is clearly one heard about the other. And got started.
0: One studio that options a piece or gets a script going, and then the, you know one, another one hears about it and they're like, "Hey, we got to go do that. We got to take care of that." And the, the funny thing about this is, these are both based on written works. The Prestige yeah. was a book, and this was a short story, and, uh, and that had come out a few years before. So these are both based on written works, but not the same written work. And I find that fascinating. That some agent somewhere, you know, piled through, found a good short story and. You know, somebody over somebody else's lunch said, ah, oh, we better go find another magic story. And they went and dug <laughs> up the prestige or whatever. I don't know. You know, it's funny yeah. how those things happen in Hollywood. Where are you, by the way, on that type of film, period drama? And stuff. that's not easy. I mean, we've covered the gladiator together, yeah. which I guess falls in that category, though that's much more of like an action movie with certain kinds of set pieces.
1: It is uh, period dramas. I mean, I like period dramas. A good movie's a good movie. Now, uh, 1800s, I especially... Like any movie set during the time of the Western, but anywhere but the West, like gangs of New York comes to mind, the prestige comes to mind. but I love any movie that examines that period of of history where you, where it's like at certain points when I was watching The Illusionist again, it just occurred to me right now is like when Django Unchained is happening, or when Good Bad and the Ugly is happening, all this stuff happening at the same times, you know these fictional story wise, but that always occurs to me when it comes to certain. Time periods, especially the 1800s.
0: That's a really interesting take. I mean, you know, this film is set in Vienna, Austria, but in America here we're 25 mm. years removed from the Civil War, you know, yeah. which was a, and Reconstruction and all you know the things that shaped the America during the 1800s and the early 1900s. Yeah, it there is something about that time. I happen to be a fan of westerns. I I grew up watching all the gun smoke and mm. you know, all that stuff and, and all the Clint Eastwood stuff. I mean, I could I could do a series on the man with no name by myself. I mean, I know (laughs) that's backward and forward. So I'm a fan of that period too, but usually in the West. I I don't go for European drama that much. But I'll tell you one thing here. I like the two lead actors here, Edward Norton and Paul Giamatti are two people I will watch do just about anything. I really, really enjoy their work um, almost anywhere along the way. And I don't know Rufus Sewell who plays the crown prince. I've never seen him in anything before or since, mm. and he's fabulous in this too. Jessica bill, I can take her leave, but, but really Paul Giamatti, Edward Norton, if, if they're in something, I'm going to give it a second look and say that might be worth, you know, going into a theater to see, or at very least it's worth hitting up the rental w- when, it comes around
1: oh yeah especially those two actors edward norton when he's good in a movie he's typically uh, really good american history x comes to mind fight club
0: two good choices uh, I,
1: there yeah i really liked them. i really liked them as uh, the incredible hulk and paul giamatti in particular is one of the one of the great character actors we got i mean when you look up like guys like walter brennan or uh, or guys of that nature paul giamatti is one of those guys, and uh, every movie he is in, he's always interesting to watch, he kind of doesn't, he kind of plays the same guy every time, but kind of doesn't he looks the same, absolutely, he's instantly recognizable, but he kind of has played different guys all the time, and he's, I love Paul Giamatti as an actor, I mean Sideways is just one of my favorite films of all time, his performance is one of the best performances of all time, and uh, we'll get into him in this movie uh, later, but uh, absolutely, like, when I heard the cast list for this movie, Edward Norton and Paul Giamatti, I saw him, he was doing press for the movie on Conan at the time, and I was like, Paul Giamatti's in a movie about a magician. It's like, well will check that out, yeah.
0: Yeah, indeed. I mean, it's certainly, it certainly attracted my interest. You say that about Giamatti; it's the head. It's that head he's <laughs> got, man. That dome. You just you can't hide it anywhere. But he is. You described him really well. He is a perfect character actor. He can chameleon into anything, and yet he looks the same almost all the time. But you totally buy him whether he's playing Ben Bernanke in something like Too Big to Fail, or he's doing something like Sideways, or if he's even in a bad movie like Paycheck. I don't know if you ever bothered with that. I'm a, yeah. I'm a Philip K. Dick fan, so I've been down that road, been affleck, I hate you. But but uh and John Woo should should pay for that soon. Yeah. But Giamatti's good in that for the five minutes he's in it i mean he's he's good in just about anything you can drop him in and he's one of those guys that i i feel like when he finally hit it and became famous and things he didn't just run out and do like every piece of schlock that got thrown at him which certainly it did he's still picky about what he does and the first time i ever saw him was in the howard stern biopic which is a terrible film but he's great in it
1: yeah, uh, the first time I saw him, I had no idea who he was, but it was in Saving Private Ryan uh, where he played—I uh, can't remember his name—but uh, you watch it again, you watch it now, and it's like how like it's, he's instantly recognizable. So, oh yeah, that's Paul Giamatti, yeah. he's in a—he was like in the '90s there. He was in like he was like a you know a background guy number two. He's in the Truman Show. He plays one of the engineers in the uh, control ah,
0: booth. I remember it's, that. Yeah.
1: It's weird watching uh, that movie. I watched that for the first time uh, you know a few years ago, and all of a sudden it's like the hell's Paul Giamatti doing playing some guy in the control booth? It's like, it just seemed like he was way too good, but that's what he was doing. Like man in the moon, he was playing a, a smaller kind of less sympathetic kind of, you know, no name, uh, character, but just, that's, that's how he got started doing stuff like that and doing, you know, private parts and, uh, and so on.
0: Exactly. So, well, I think before we get any further into this and talking about these guys, we should give the folks a plot summary. So if you will, Kurt, tell us what is the illusionist
1: about? Okay. <clears throat> Okay. Though the ill-fated childhood romance between cabinet maker's son Eisenheim, played by Edward Norton, and upper-class Sophie von Teschen, played by Jessica Biel, eventually resulted in the heartbroken young man leaving Austria to explore the world, his dreams of one day reuniting with the, beloved, with the beautiful Duchess never faded. He returns to Vienna 15 years later as a talented, renowned illusionist. However, his hopes of a reunion seem dashed when he learns that Sophie is currently engaged to Crown Prince Leopold, played by Rufus Sewell. When Sophie is murdered, the inspector's loyalties are tested even further while the tensions between Eisenheim and – out the silence. hold on, let me read re- that line again – Uh, When Sophie is murdered, the inspector's loyalties are tested even further while the tensions between Eisenheim and Leopold elevate. The prince eventually shoots himself, and in the end, we learn that Sophie's murder was just another one of Eisenheim's illusions, and the two reunite and leave Vienna together. That's a good way
0: to summarize it. There's so much to talk about in this film. I think it's good if we just kind of walk through it bit by bit and, uh, you know, and get into this thing and we've talked about it and I love how, the film opens up with a, what is a classic film trope. You know, we're at the climax. You know, we <laughs> see Chief Inspector Rule, Paul, Paul Giamatti, ready to arrest Eisenheim during what seems to be some kind of uh, magic show that he is performing, where he is summoning spirits of the dead on stage, and we don't know, you know, how this is, you know, what what's happening or anything. But we're thrown right into this, and sometimes that can be really annoying as a story trope. But in this case, I think it introduces. us us to a world and it sets a bar immediately that we need to pay attention to just the most minuscule of things of how it's going to happen here. I, I don't know. I liked the opening here.
1: Uh, yeah, the opening, watching it, uh, last night, uh, I mean, watching the film again, the opening is a little bit confusing. I thought it was like, I wasn't really sure what was going on, uh, But I mean, it throws you right in the middle of it. It definitely, it definitely sets the bar for the the sets the tone for what this movie is going to be. And uh, yeah, I thought the opening was pretty good.
0: I love that they go right into the flashback too of seeing the you know Eisenheim, the son of the peasant cabinet maker. And uh, did you recognize the teenage Eisenheim by the way, Aaron Johnson?
1: ass. I absolutely himself. did. Kickass himself. I,
0: it's those eyes, man. I was like, oh wow, it's Kickass. You know, yeah. I, I'm sorry, Aaron. I only know you for that. But <laughs> and that was kind of neat. And it, you watch him become obsessed with his magic tricks and learning how to do this. I don't know. It was just neat. And this this star-crossed Lover story. I mean, that, how many times have you seen that in the movie? I mean, gosh, it seems like it's yeah. all the time, right? The the two people that are from the wrong side of the tracks, you know, they can't be together, Rebel Without a Cause, West Side oh, Story, yeah. all this stuff, right? But it, when done well, it works. And I like this setup here that really what this is going to be about is it's a it's a movie about magic, but it's really a movie about what you'll do for love, right?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh... I think, yeah, the genre this movie's in, first and foremost, would be a a romantic uh, drama.
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, even the way it's shot, all the soft sepia tones and things. I don't know Neil Berger's work from anything else, but I I really think he's got a real grasp of the camera here. I mean, I thought it was a beautiful setting for the film and how it kind of stays that way the whole time. There's just this little bit of cloud, you know, sort of hanging around. It's, It's always misty, I guess you'd say.
1: Uh, it is uh, definitely uh, any issues to have with the film. None of them do with the look of the film. Dick Pope was the cinematographer for this film. He was up for an Oscar for best cinematography and the film looks outstanding. I watched it on the HD version on Netflix and yeah, I was, I was uh, a little bit taken aback a little, just be like, man, this movie looks good. Uh, and yeah, Neil Berger, uh, I've only seen two films of his, this and limitless, which he made a few years ago. And I, Honestly, I prefer that film to The Illusionist. I think that film is way underrated. Uh, just a, that's a whole that, that's its own discussion, but uh, that's a Terrific film and Neil Berger is a director that's like I'll 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 check out his next films absolutely he's a he's a pretty good director.
0: I believe he's making Divergent, which is sort of the the current uh, you know the the uh, latest young adult novel that's kind of taken over the Hunger Games spot as far as just that type of of uh, you know fervor and stuff. I think it's his next big thing that he's making. But just it, as yeah. far as this is the setup of this, I really like this idea of these two that are forbidden to see each other. They meet secretly until they're forcibly separated right and of course that sends one of them eisenheim you know, to to travel the world to perfect his craft and how do you like how that is told really in sort of flash forward like we don't really get to see him doing a lot we just see him learning a few tricks here and there and things and learning you know, the, the secrets of illusionists and such
1: uh yeah uh- it's it's pretty good. They uh they don't spend that much time in in the, in the flashback. I could I would I wouldn't mind it if they spent a little bit more time with Aaron Johnson and and so on. It's really uh I was uh t- I thought it was really strange when you see him uh coming across this magician who's lying on the side of the road and he uh he makes himself and the giant tree he is sitting under a vanish. And uh, that's the biggest sort of illusion that's done in the movie. And it works because it's being, you know, you're, you're seeing, a, uh, you're being told a story when you're seeing that. I think if they just showed that happen in the modern day with Edward Norton, all of a sudden a tree disappears, I'd think, what, you know, what world exactly are we in? But I, I didn't, I'm, I actually thought it was pretty good uh, seeing that in that flashback uh, story form
0: yeah there's an underlying part of this, and it goes on you know after uh, norton's character returns back to Vienna as an adult and he kind of embarrasses the Crown Prince at a private show and such like that like there seems to be this constant need of like show me how it 's done, show me how it 's done and that's you know that's a big thing in the magician 's world I mean I remember uh, back several years ago there were tons of television specials right i'm like we're going to show you how it 's done you know and I remember watching David Copperfield when I was a kid you know make the Statue of Liberty disappear and then walk through the Great Wall of China and all these grand (laughs) illusions. And it was always about the show. And that's one thing I, I like about this film is that it doesn't exist in a world where this guy has some sort of supernatural power it is just an illusion and you never really know how it's all done. And I, I don't know that part of me, you know, the guy, the the film reviewer and, you know, I'm a spoiler freak. I don't mind spoilers. They don't bother me. They don't ruin anything for me, uh, particularly if it's something I'm really into. I, you know, it only enhances it for me, but I realize that's a, that's a minority opinion, but I don't have a problem with that kind of stuff. But even this type of stuff, there's one thing I've never wanted to know how the magic trick worked. Cause to <laughs> me that does ruin it like film and, and knowing plot and stuff like that's one thing, but I don't want to know how the sleight of hand works. I just want to be amazed at how well you do it. And I like that that is part of the theme here is that they never really tell you how any of it's done.
1: Yeah. Uh, and that's kind of this movie is kind of the flip side of that coin with regards to the prestige. I'm going to try hard not to mention the prestige too much during <laughs> this, but uh, the prestige is all about. Uh, the work that goes into making the trick like we see the trick from the inside out we know that we know the illusion uh you know before the audience sees it uh the, but the illusionist is all about you know uh, not you're you're you don't know how what we're seeing is happening uh might go this do this tr- as the tricks go on in the film but yeah the orange tree i mean uh yeah i mean uh, when seeing that that scene in the in in the movie when you see all of a sudden a tree blossom very quickly and actually produce oranges uh that was one thing I was like oh cool but later we you know jumping ahead to where uh inspector Uhl is actually reading a, he's, he has a book by eisenheim that says how he made that tree uh that I didn't buy that i was like Are we, I, I, that I couldn't, you can't build something that will produce an actual orange that you can eat within five seconds. Uh, so I mean this, I, you say like the film is set in a world of like, it's all fake. I read it slightly differently. I read it as there's elements, like there's some elements of the supernatural that, uh, I was seeing in this film, certain things that happened later in the film. It's like, that's, I don't know if that's in the plane of reality that, uh, other period dramas are in.
0: Well, you know, uh, probably not where other period dramas are concerned. But as we do these two films, and we are doing them in comparison, so we'll talk about a little bit of the prestige here, and then we'll, you mm-hmm. know, do its review, and we'll reference back to Illusionist in it. I think we do have to look at it just in its own context, and I think this film is built in a reality. So hold that thought about Uhl at the end, because I think that's a big plot point, and we'll we'll get around to that. But that, I mean, that's one of the first tricks that we really get to see the adult Eisenheim. Uh, Edward Norton perform was the orange tree. You know, he just makes this little plant you know, grow and it grows right there, and boom, there's oranges. And I don't know, I thought that was really neat. But what I really got off on was how well Edward Norton carried that the way that illusionists work. You know, I don't know if you've watched a lot of them or stuff. It's all about you know their hands and it's the sleight of hand. It's the oldest trick in the book. But it's to get you to notice something that you don't pay attention to what's really happening. But it's all about grace and Edward Norton. As much as I'm going to compliment Paul Giamatti, when Norton is good, he can do the same kind of stuff. He can just morph into so many different kinds of roles. And I see him doing this, and he looks like someone who's really enjoying performing like this and trying to learn this stuff. Because the 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 behind-the-scenes stuff is that they brought in all kinds of master illusionists to work with him and really get his his motions down. And he worked really hard on it. I think it pays off. I mean, you can see it.
1: Oh, yeah. And this yeah, like you said, this movie, they, they brought in some illusionists. In fact, one of them was Ricky Jay, who was a, another consultant on The Prestige and actually appears in the film as the magician that Christian Bale and Hugh Jackman first work with. And Ricky Jay, I, anyone uh, wants to uh, entertain themselves, look up Ricky Jay on YouTube with card tricks or any kind of magic tricks. That guy is a master of uh of sleight of hand and happens to also be a fantastic character actor and is the good luck of being good friends with david Mamet and has been in almost every movie he's had a part in and he's actually appeared in deadwood and written a few episodes of that show and he's a you know uh, jack of all trades uh, absolutely and uh would have liked to have seen him in the film actually but uh Oh yeah, I mean, you know, pretty much. Yeah, you look up Ricky Jay. He's been a consultant for any oh. movie that deals with sleight of hand and magic tricks.
0: Well, well, the thing is, you do see him in the film. You just don't see his face. A lot of those oh. hand tricks, especially when uh-huh. Eisenheim is doing the face paintings on the on the canvases and things, mm. the the up close of the hands are Ricky Jay, and then the the wide shots are Norton. So they they didn't, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, they couldn't get it perfect. There's no way anybody, an actor, can get anything down exactly. Uh, I think back to Ralph Macchio in a movie like Crossroads. He didn't know how to play the guitar at all. But Rye Cooter, who played the soundtrack, taught him enough of how to fake it where it looked real. <laughs> and as a guitar player, I can watch it and go, yeah, that's not exactly right. But if, you, if you're if you not paying attention, you're just listening and you're kind of watching the performance, it's not bad. It's actually pretty good. And that's the same thing I get from Norton. That's another reason you don't see Ricky Jay in this too. Edward Norton is notorious for the camera must be on me and me, and no one else. I mean, that's that's his reputation. And it is that yeah. way for a reason. He's very accomplished, but he also knows he is. <laughs> and I think uh, there's a lot of that here. That's it. The one thing I'll ding Norton for in his performance here, his accent is horrible. <laughs> I don't know what it's uh, trying to be, but it slips in and out all the time. And I imagine at some point it just became, we're just going to have to go with it.
1: Yeah, that is definitely a complaint I have with this film. Uh, I was taken out. Quite often by the fact that every actor in this film, as one as one of the guest critics on uh, Ebern Roper at the movies uh, put it, every actor in this movie is like doing their best bad uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger impression <laughs> because the movie is set in Austria and Vienna, they have to do this Germanic accent and I don't recall there actually being one Germanic actor in the cast or all either American or British, and uh, so I was t- that I didn't like. I really don't think. Uh, Uh, actors, it's one thing for an American to do a British accent or vice versa, but when you start getting into other country accents, like German or uh, Austrian or whatever...
0: (laughs) Does does Beale even try? I didn't. She just sounds like the (laughs) same person she always sounds like. I mean, Jessica was fine in some things, but I'm like, yeah, that's she doesn't sound like she can affect any kind of accent. And uh, Sewell is just doing his normal speech. I mean, I thought he was British. It it took me a little while to realize. Wait a minute, this is not in England. So I mean, (laughs) unless they would remind you all the time of that, you wouldn't know it. And you're right, everybody slips into very bad Schwarzenegger from from time. To time, you know, it's yeah. just not an illusion, it's a trick, but you know, <laughs> I mean it's it's all that, that that's in there, but. The thing that, that caught me, and I, I realized I was like I was bumping up against the accent stuff, but I watched this twice for this review, and the second time around just sort of getting engrossed in the story, you are able to forget about that stuff if you can get into the story. And yeah. the, the, the way this thing works is it's a big whodunit and a mystery too. I mean, it's a romance, but it's also a mystery, because we don't know why Eisenheim is going to be arrested. You can figure out very quickly, it's going to be this love triangle between him and Sophie and this crown prince, and then you've got this... Um, investigator who's legally bound to protect the interests of the crown prince and such, but he's also someone who is enamored with Eisenheim. So you watch this, this cop, if you will, have his loyalties really tested as the film goes forward. I don't know. It, it was neat. I mean, it would have been like, uh, you know, to use a more modern example, if Hank had uh, learned about uh, Walter's uh, meth dealing, you know, a little bit earlier and had kind of mm-hmm. been okay with it because he realized he was paying for a lot of stuff, mm-hmm. you know, and then been tested by it. I mean, I could see that type of thing. I, I really got into, particularly the second time around, all of the the interplay between the characters and i was able to kind of drop the stuff that i didn't like necessarily about the performances
1: yeah and you hit on something i did like about the film is that it kind of changes up genres a little bit at the midway point when jessica beale's character exits the film yeah and eisenheim uh changes up his act and starts communing with supposedly uh, the spirits of the dead uh he uh, he starts to, uh, hmm, how do I word this? Well, I'll just get to uh, probably my favorite uh, scene in the film is where uh, right around the I don't know, three-quarter mark, uh, Leopold Prince goes undercover to see one of Eisenheim's shows to see what all this hoopla is about. He can supposedly talk with the dead. And all of a sudden, the spirit that heisenheim brings back is sophie jessica beale's character and she starts saying the man who killed me is in this room and uh and you and maybe the audience know or are guessing and that it's that it's leopold and also so edward norton and probably knows that he's in the room and he's trying to somehow I was going to say frame, but he's trying to uh, uh, place the blame where it's meant to go and get Leopold either arrested or uh, out of power. So it it turns in from, you know, uh, uh, know, almost like semi-political thriller uh, at a certain point, not just a movie about a magician in love.
0: Oh, no, that's exactly right. I mean, let's set all that up real quick and back it up. Eisenheim's performing his shows and the crown prince comes after one of the shows and demands to see how the trick's done so he pulls the curtain back and lets him know a little bit and then at one of the shows he gets him up on the stage after he's seen him do a few things and he has Sophie up there and she looks at herself in the mirror and we see her get cut down in the mirror and then she kind of faints and then wakes up and there's I mean there's all kinds of you know ah in the audience and Leopold takes the stage and I love how Eisenheim gets a hold of his sword and he makes it stand up and they do the sword and the stone trick. You know, they bring Hmm. up all these other men. Can you pull it out of the, uh, it's really kind of freestanding. I don't know if you, there was an internet Twitter craze where you make your broom stand up. On the sound, yeah. if you got involved in that, we did. But anyway, <laughs> you know, I thought of that, and you know, only the worthy one can pull it out. Well, of course, he's able to ultimately wrench it out of its, you know, uh, mythical stone that it's in. But I liked all that interplay there. But you can tell very quickly that this prince has absolutely no patience for this man, and he knows he and Sophie have some kind of of history that he's not really akin to. And what we get let in on is that he is someone with a with a history of battering women, perhaps even having killed one before. And he doesn't have a ton of respect for her, but because of her status and position in his, it's like that marriage of convenience. You know, the political yeah. marriage, right? And there's that tension between the two of them. And, I, you know, usually that stretches for an entire movie. And in the last three scenes of the romantic comedy, the girl runs off with the guy she really wants to. In this one, she sleeps with Eisenheim and goes to Leopold and tells him straight up, I'm not going anywhere with you. And I, I like that, that they unraveled that very quickly in front of us. It, it felt like we were seeing the end of a relationship that had been spiraling downward for quite some time.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah, it's weird seeing that. You don't see that too many times in uh, movies with that kind of you know love triangle where the guy the audience hates is flat out told by the woman, no, I don't want to be with you at all. Usually maybe that's saved for like the last scene where she finally goes running to the guy the audience wants to be with. But no, like right away, you know, halfway through the movie, it's like, yeah, I don't want to be with you. Uh, We're not getting uh, together. We got to, you know, we got to stop this. And that, of course, you know, uh, gets Leopold a little uh, upset. Yeah. Enraged, I think is the good word, you know, and he's
0: chasing her with his sword drawn. I mean, people see this. And then the next day. The The horse comes into town covered in blood without her. They find her in the woods, and she's you know dead, as it were. And everyone's trying to say it's got to be the the crown prince. He, he has done it. Eisenheim tells you all that, and, of course, he refuses to believe it. And what I'm starting to realize and what you know now, if you've seen the film and you know the twist of it, is that Eisenheim has set all of this up to – Basically, free Sophie and ruin Leopold at the same time. It's the old trading yeah. spaces thing. I, you know, I bet him a dollar we couldn't get rich and make y'all <laughs> poor at the same time. And I, I you know, I like that though. I like those kind of political thrillers, and even you know, I like that twist in a comedy. Whatever. I mean, I like the the dual the the dual uh, motives, if you will.
1: Uh, oh yeah, uh, uh, definitely. Uh, I don't know why my mind just went blank there.
0: Well, we're just talking about the, the motive and stuff. So, anything you want to add in on the fact that you know, Eisenheim's seemingly behind this or he's pushing for this and how you all react? Let's go from
1: there. Uh, well, uh, I definitely like the fact that Eisenheim, from the get go, does not like Leopold and Leopold doesn't like him. The sword and the stone bit, uh, the way uh, Le- uh, Eisenheim is looking at Leopold when he Leopold cannot move his sword, you can tell there's a, you know, uh, uh, Eisenheim is containing his glee in he, he is embarrassing the most powerful man in you know uh, a 30 block radius that uh, he is he's absolutely uh he's making a fool out of him and he's having a f- uh, fun time doing it and uh that is something that is not necess- is not in the prestige It's that element of uh, uh the prestige is all about as uh, Hugh Jackman says it's all about you know uh, he's in love with the audience he's in love with the people that he's doing these illusions to but Eisenheim is uh first thing that came to mind when during that sword scene was that this whole magic trick is, is a, it's a fuck you to the Prince. That's exactly yeah. what it
0: is. Yeah, no, I think you're dead on. It is all. everything he is doing in Vienna has nothing to do with his career. We see him giving his money away to, you know, poor children on the street. He no. fires his manager at one time. He moves money around from here to there. He changes his show. His, he doesn't care about his career. That's not what he's there for. He is there for Sophie and he knows to get her. He has got to, completely ruined this other guy. Plus the fact that the guy she is betrothed to is really a bad person. I mean, let's just say it. The Crown Prince is not, he's not likable in any way. He's a jerk. He's pompous. He's drunk. He's uh, misuses his power. He makes old, you know, start going after Eisenheim because he thinks he had something to do with killing Sophie when that's clearly not the case. I mean, he is someone who abuses his power and he needs to be taken out, but there's no one there, pr- you know, strong enough to do it. And th- that's the the intriguing part to me is watching this little mu- uh, musician, I keep saying that, this little stage. <laughs> magician essentially ruined his own career and this guy at the same time for the sake of this girl
1: uh, yeah uh, Eisenheim like yeah you just yeah you said it he's not caring so much about the career he's not really caring about the audience he's he's doing all of this he's probably come to Vienna perhaps all to get Sophie not to become the world's most famous magician Uh, I mean, like right at the end of the movie, they're not living in when you cut to where they've gone out into the country. They're not living in a city where he can all of a sudden go perform magic. He's just somewhere where he can be with her. Yeah, his career as a magician is uh, no matter how good he is or how much he enjoys doing that. It's like he doesn't he doesn't care about that. Reminded me just a little bit of like Slumdog Millionaire where the guy he could care less about the fact that he's going to win a million dollars. He's just there to help get into contact with his girl.
0: And, and have that awesome dance scene in the subway at the end. Right. Don't forget that. But yeah, no, you're right. I mean, this is really about the – I mean, he could never perform again. Eisenheim could never perform again under that, that name, the illusionist, because he'll be a wanted man. You know, at at the end of it, at least for questioning in in some ways and for fraud in a lot of other ways, that's what he's performing here. And, you know, I love, though, how he plays along with it because he plays and feigns as if he's so wracked with grief that he he ditches his old show and he brings in these Chinese stage hands and he's got all these little, you know, gas lamps around and stuff and he starts communing with spirits of the dead, right? Mm -hmm. And there are people that. The audience recognizes there's a child that they've seen that's been sickly on the street. There's an old woman. There's, you know, I don't know. I liked all that intrigue, though. I've got to ask you, because you mentioned before, you think it is kind of like a um, uh, that he does have some supernatural powers. What do you think? I mean, is, is there some supernatural element to this?
1: Uh, I'm saying that uh, there is has to be in some fashion like there's a few things we jumped over the mirror trick where uh, uh jessica Biel is standing in front of a standing in front of a tall mirror and the reflection is doing its own thing that yeah. they they don't address how that happens in the in the movie uh watching it thinking that this is a movie set 100 in reality a world of machines and science uh that met that mirror trick tells me it's like okay this is there's 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 something else in play we're we're in the we're in a world of uh of magic and fantasy somewhat uh and that's how i did think of the the, the spirits of the dead i mean uh there's a scene where the child is running is coming into the audience uh i might have uh, seen it wrong but it looked like he was literally walking through uh someone as though his hand his head phased through someone's arm uh, i don't know if i saw that correctly but uh uh yeah there's also a bit where. Uh, Literally, a person, half of a person, rises up out of a uh, a ring, and it's 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 uh, supposedly a a spirit. Uh, but oh, I read it as uh, if it's an illusion. If it's if this is a hundred percent, you know, he's faking it. I I don't know how he's doing it. I think it's I, th- I think it's easier to swallow if if uh, if it's out not and and a a fantasy film.
0: Well, I I can agree with that, but I want to tell you my take on it now. I disagree. I think this is a total supposed to be reality, and the last line of the film is a line that's in the movie is really the the kitch of it is that everything you've seen is an illusion. It is a trick. And this film is set allegedly seven, eight years before the first motion picture right. is seen and is invented. But... Eisenheim brings on these mysterious—I mean, they're mysterious in a way. These Chinese stagehands and these equipment, this piece of equipment, nobody seems to know what they are. And I have taken it that somehow they have figured out through smoke and mirrors, literally smoke and mirrors in a lot of ways, how to do these mirrored reflections, these apparitions, if you will, and the the you know the mirror thing and whatever. I, I think it was just a setup. I you know good a good mime. Can do that to somebody and really freak them out. I've I've had that happen before, hmm. just with a street performer that would you know, match your movement. And he, I mean, he was, and I'd never seen the do before, and it was amazing to see. I think Eisenheim just had his hands on those kind of people and could get him to work. I, I, I like this film and the idea that it is in reality, that everything you see is just there to entertain you and to also serve the real purpose. The purpose is so he and Sophie can go live in the country together in a quiet life and get away from all of this you know, politics and society and all this stuff. What they wanted when they were kids or, or teenagers they now can have, but the only way to do that is they have to perform this elaborate escape if you will. I I kind of like it that way. And I think that's the the whole thing he's trying to sell here is as he goes more supernatural, the point is is so he can eventually do the the trick where Sophie's ghost comes a couple of times in the show. And that starts getting everyone in the audience to not just wonder who killed her, but to lay blame right on the Crown Prince.
1: Uh Oh yeah, definitely. Like I said, uh it also becomes uh, more apparent that uh, Eisenheim is – for when you think that Sophie is dead, you think that he's forgotten about – not forgotten about Sophie. But that he's just really focused on uh, getting a certain amount of revenge on what? Leopold. And uh, that – part of that is in turn trying to get the people of Vienna to uh, – uh, well, he's so trying to get them to hate uh, Leopold in whatever way yeah. he can, and in terms of saying, "Well, I'm being like he literally tells the crowd at one point to forget the exact line, but he says I'm being censored by the governments. You can, you know, basically he's saying you can blame them." He's just giving him as many reasons as he can to hate the establishments.
0: Well, and as the way I read it, too. It doesn't take much to get people to turn on Leopold. He's not someone who's well liked. He's more feared than he is respected. And as it turns out, when he's having his diatribe at the end, he says flat out, I want to, you know, uh do away with the 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 representation of the people. I'm going to rule as a dictator. I don't you know I don't want any of this. I don't want to be governed by other people. I'm going to seize power and govern by decree. He wants to be supreme leader, and you can never hide those kind of intentions when you're in that type of public uh, place of power. People know that about you, particularly the people that we're settled in here with. In, the, the city of Vienna, these people know who he is and what he is. It doesn't take them much to accept the suggestion that, well, this man who's violent with women might have gotten too violent with his fiance and killed her, you know, especially when you start putting all the pieces together. It's how innuendo and rumors work. I mean, whether and, and the, th- the thing we got to remember, though, is for all of Leopold's faults, he didn't do it. <laughs> I mean, he didn't kill her. He did chase her with a sword because he was mad at her, but he didn't kill her. And that's the the one thing he's not guilty of. And oddly enough, that does him in. Over all the other things he was guilty of that didn't convict him, the thing that he's not guilty of, he becomes so convinced of it himself that, you know, he he shoots himself.
1: Yeah, uh, I'll be perfectly honest. That did not occur to me until right now. Uh, It just, it didn't click that uh yeah Leopold he actually didn't do anything. But, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but all of this uh all this investigation and the and, and, and inspector Uhl and the soldiers arriving to uh to the palace has he has it's uh he has convinced himself that he has killed someone to the point where he commits suicide uh because been when faced with the consequences of something that he didn't do. That actually is uh, a hell of a revenge plot.
0: I mean it it really is. I mean it's if I can't get the guy for everything he has done, then I'm gonna get him for the one thing he hasn't done but that everyone will turn on him for. So yeah. you, you completely embarrass him and you remove his your weak position of power. Hold on a second. Oh, bad bad sneeze. Ooh, anyway, you remove his uh, another one. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> You embarrass him publicly to the point that the people turn on him and his father's government, the army, comes in to go, we, We've got to go take this kid and get him, at least get him out of position. I didn't think they were coming to do anything to him except just get him out of town, wait to smooth things over, et cetera, calm the situation down. But because he is, one way or another, internally becomes convicted of everything he's done like you said he convinced himself that I did do this then yeah and the only way out is the bullet through his own head i mean it's it's an amazing revenge plot and it's it's hella elaborate too i mean it's what oh, yeah. you know at any point something could fall apart but it doesn't and it, and i think because it exists in a period in time when people didn't know about reflective cameras or mirrors. They didn't know the trick. They didn't, there was no special on how, you know, tune in tonight on the corner of how Eisenheim does the orange tree. Nobody was doing that. So, people were much more, I guess, able to go along with it, I guess, or maybe gullible to it. I mean, that's not necessarily a bad term sometimes. We live in the behind-the-scenes world nowadays. I often think that definitely shades the way we look at entertainment, You know, and, and I try to put myself in the position of if I were in this crowd, what would I have reacted? How would I have done it? And I'd probably do the same thing everybody else did. It'd be like, I'd be asking the ghost questions. (laughs) You know, that's the thing that keeps going on. I found all of that to be really intriguing. I mean, that's the part of the film that starts to speed up and really kept me engaged the whole time. I mean, after Sophie's murdered and every time Eisenheim, goes on to stage and brings up another ghost and particularly when he brings Sophie up and he gets threatened and threatened every time it it just I don't know it just ratchets up the tension and I love how he he tells the entire crowd the absolute truth at the end if I've done anything here to make you think that you know we were really communing with the dead I'm telling you now it was a lie it was just a joke it was just a trick it's all an illusion he lets it out and no one believes it You know, it's when you do something so well so many times, it's hard for people to believe, right?
1: Oh, yeah. And uh, that absolutely is an element of the film. I think I I would have liked to have seen Explore a little bit more is the fact that the audience really, truly believes that what he's doing is real. They're not going to see a magician, a performer. They are going to see a –
0: necromancer i mean a that's necromancer
1: what, yeah, that's uh, what they,
0: they that's what they think he is you know oh, yeah. I, I, the way i i really i, I found this uh interesting analogy to this is it's like actors who play iconic roles and then they never seem to be able to do anything else and people just always associate them with that thing right and yeah. no matter how many times they say I'm not that guy no matter how many times William Zabka says look I am not Johnny of the Cobra Kai he will <laughs> always be sweep the leg Johnny of the Cobra Kai and, and then um, now he's kind of embraced that which is fun to see but I'm sure as an actor that was frustrating as hell for you know, years because that was the only part he could get was the (laughs) 80s dick you know and i mean that's what he was and i don't know I, i just think about that and you know norton is a guy that likes to slip those types of things into films as well and i think it's one of the things he's kind of getting off on here is this performance is that you get so enamored with the illusion that you you forget your own senses people to realize that all i'm trying to do is I'm I'm really just trying to win back my girlfriend and ruin the guy that is totally wrong for her and also wrong for you. But I really don't care about the political side of it. He's not here to win the seat. He's not trying to become the crown prince. He just doesn't want that guy to do it.
1: Oh yeah. Uh, Yeah. And I wonder if Eisenheim uh, knew that he would be drawing in the audience in this way. Uh, I think he was really just doing this to lead towards uh, Leopold and that the fact that the audience is so enamored with the act is uh, a nice bonus that, of course, Eisenheim doesn't care about. As we said, he doesn't care about money. He doesn't care about whether he's famous or not. He's just doing this to get his uh, revenge, uh, so to speak. And that, yeah, the audience, you know, uh, uh, selling out the house every night. That's just a nice bonus. I think that's exactly right. He
0: doesn't care about that. He's there to get Sophie back and to ruin the guy that was going to ruin her life. And the fact that everyone just goes along with it just makes it all the more believable. It makes the illusion more elaborate. And I think he goes more elaborate with it in the story because people are going with it. But he would just as soon have been able to fake the – Murder or her death and run away with her but all these other things are just too too good i mean he's he's a performer and performers yeah. will tell you even though they are totally wrapped in the performance yeah. and it's all about the performance and working with their fellow actors and all that kind of stuff you feed off of it when a crowd gets into it no matter who you are how insulated you become to the craft that's just what you do You know, and and everybody does that. And I think in some ways he allows himself to indulge in some of that. But the thing about Eisenheim that makes him so, I guess, scary is how dogged he is in understanding and staying on path for his goal. He never loses control of any of it. And that's unique. Like usually in these films, the a protagonist at some point screws up and has to double back and fix something. We never see that. If that's the case here, he's always supremely in control.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. He never, you never see him. You never see this guy sweat. You never see him uh, worry. Uh, you don't actually see that much emotion, uh, from him uh, at all. He's really just, you know, he's on this, uh, Particular revenge quest, and the thing is, I don't know. I mean, uh, I keep calling it a revenge, but as we've established, he didn't, Leopold didn't actually uh, do anything except kind of, you know, get in the way of eisenheim being with, uh, with Sophie. So uh, I don't know what you'd call that. I guess maybe revenge might be the right word, but uh, but yeah,
0: is, yeah, it is a different kind of revenge. And yeah, you know, the film ends as it began with a montage. You know, and you say, you know, the, the book, the little boy who, if you didn't notice it or not, was the little boy that was supposedly dead and was one of the ghosts. Is yeah. the kid that gives him the book on right. how to do the orange tree trick. I, I liked that, though. I liked how that unfolded, is that because Ewell was a man of real character, he's the only one here that is has real character. He's always the same. His loyalties get tested, sure, but he does his job till the very end and then when his job is no longer there he's still trying to do it because he believes in what's right he's the the moral center if you will and because he is that pure I think Eisenheim rewards him with I want you to know how to do the thing that you first fascinated you about me. Right. I want to show you my trick. And I don't know. I liked that. I thought that was really neat. And the smile he has on his face, Giamatti has that big face and that big smile. It's, it was pure joy there at the end. I just, I don't know. I really, really liked it. In fact, I would have been fine if we had seen Eisenheim and Sophie embrace, and then it ends on Giamatti's face with that overdub instead of the other way around.
1: Uh, Well, okay uh, the 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 final scene of the the reveal now him getting the orange tree book I liked that uh, you know he that Eisenheim you know uh, reveals the trick to the to his supposedly his biggest fan the, you know the uh, inspectors uh he was a fan you know literally going he looked like a he was sending guys into the audience to just make sure to, just he was using the law to help find out how the guy does his magic tricks I thought that was funny uh, but this is, I think, the one thing about the film that I might dislike the most is that we see he has the, he gets the Orange tree book and he start we see we are clearly inside Ool's head as Ool is trying to work out the conspiracy. He's trying to work out the revenge plot. And in his mind, we see that he is working out every single thing. He is seeing Jessica Beale uh, being brought back to life uh, in the in the water. And so on, and he's seeing, you know, the the double faces, and so on, and he's working all of this out uh, in a way that I just did not buy. If Eisenheim wrote a letter saying, "Here's what I did and how I did it," I'd have bought that more. But just like the fact that he's working all of this out on his own in a way that I could never work out, uh, I, I I just I did not buy that reveal. I think that something like the sixth sense. Uh, did that kind of reveal in a way that I was, uh, it was easier to swallow. And uh, you say you liked uh, Paul Giamatti's uh, look on his face. Now, I might be wrong, but I could have sworn at some point, maybe years ago, that I read an interview or something with Paul Giamatti where he looked back at his acting during that scene and wondered what he was doing, that he, he, had, <laughs> that he did not like his performance, or that he said that on the day that the director just told him to be big or whatever it was. But I heard that I, I heard it through maybe another someone else that Paul Giamatti did not like his final scene as it appears in the movie because he doesn't say anything, but it's just him with this smile that just grows bigger and bigger and bigger. And I thought that was a, I thought it was a little, uh, uh, campy, but, uh, it, it is.
0: But again, I'm telling you, as you know, for the second time of going through this and watching it, and just going with it for what it is. It's the reveal I want. I want all to be smart enough to have put it together. Like, you know what I mean? Like I, like, I understand what you're saying. I don't disagree with that point. I think I think it's an excellent way to look at it. But I like the fact that he is someone who can put it together. Or, let me give you another option. Maybe he's just putting that together so he can put it to bed in his own mind. So he
1: can be over it. So he can be done with it. Uh I like that. I like the idea that you know he's coming up with his own happy ending to this particular story that if it you know if this if this if, that if it wasn't the case this would be a very very tragic uh film indeed and that Ull is coming up with his happy ending. That actually is a nice uh, spin for it.
0: Definitely could be that way. I don't know. It, there's there's a lot of I don't know neat stuff with the way this this goes and ends, but I don't know. I I found the ending to be <laughs> I don't know if it was what I expected, but it, it was what I wanted. And I, I don't know. I went with it. I enjoyed it. I think we're at the part of the podcast, though, that it's time for us to give our final thoughts, recommendations and popcorn ratings. So, Kurt, what are yours for The Illusionist?
1: OK, now. I will say this. I watched the film yesterday and it was the first time I've seen it since 2006. And I did not really enjoy it too much watching it last night. This discussion has raised my rating of the film slightly. Thinking about how deep this uh, revenge plot of Eisenheim went, and how he got the result he desired, uh, and that Leopold uh, kills himself for you know w- through guilt of something he didn't do. That I actually think is uh, is great stuff. And certain elements of uh, him as a as a magician as a performer I liked. Uh, one thing that I'll flat out say I didn't like is the fact that some of the, a lot of the illusions involve CG. Like C, I think that was CG butterflies carrying a handkerchief. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just thought you know, when you're doing actual magic in a, f- a film set in 1886, I would have liked it if they... No matter how elaborate the special effect would have been, I would have liked it if they tried their best to do something physical. I mean, if that orange tree is supposedly supposed to be a mechanical object, I would have liked to I mean, that would have been a hell of an effect. To see something that elaborate actually be built. So, but like I said, uh, the film as uh, as a period piece from the, the costume design, the art direction, so on, is top notch. The film looks outstanding. The accents, as I went into, are a little bit. I I kept thinking, you know what? They could have just done a Red, Hunt for Red October and cheat it. You know, let them say, let them talk in German for five minutes and then transition them to speaking stalking in their regular accents because that took me out of it a little bit. But uh, I think the film uh, is a very good looking film. I would recommend it for anyone who's interested in that. I think the love story is good. The revenge plot is better the more I think about it. Uh, I would give the film a, uh, a medium popcorn. It was a small popcorn last night, but I think uh, this discussion has, has raised it up a bit. I think the film is better and I'll definitely I think I'll, I'll be watching it again. I think I never I, after last night, I thought, you know what? I think I'm done with this movie. But look, I think I'll be watching it again with all with uh, with looking at it as the complete puzzle rather rather than uh, as individual pieces. So medium popcorn for me. I was amazed
0: at how much I liked this film. I, when it started, I thought, eh, I don't know if I'm going to go for this. You know, I, I thought, because eh, I know what I think of The Prestige. And, and it's hard to hold anything up to that, because that's clouding my mind, if you will. But when yeah. I let myself go with this, particularly the second time around through it, I think this is the kind of film that gets better the more you watch it. Because once you know the end... Then what you're there to do is to try to pick up the pieces. Can you figure it out along the way? Can you see how he's possibly doing this? Can you see how he's manipulating people? And I got to tell you, the thing that really, really carries me through it is Giamatti. And he may not like some of his performance and things, and that's fine. He's As an actor, he's more than willing, welcome to critique his own performance. But as someone who watched it, I really dug in, and he was my in for this film, and he's the thing that keeps me coming back through it. Um, It it is fabulous, and I think it's beautifully shot. I would have loved it if the effects were more practical, too. I'm a big practical effect guy, too, but I'll be honest, the CG never took me out of it. I thought it was cool. I thought it worked well, and it was mysterious, because again, it wasn't so obvious to me. I, I, I just went with it, and I really enjoyed this, much more than I thought I would. It's not perfect, by any means, but it's definitely the kind of film that I want to go back to, I want to see it again. I want to try to introduce it to other people. And I hope that's what we've done here with our, our review here is the first part of the Hollywood doppelgangers, maybe introduced a film that people saw and then forgot about. And you know, seven years, eight years later, it's time to go back and take a look at again. For me, this is a large popcorn. It's quality performances, quality shoot, uh, quality cinematography, and a very satisfying uh, resolution. I enjoyed it, so I'm going to give it a large popcorn. So that sets us up. Next time, Kurt will come back and do the other part of this Hollywood doppelganger duology. We'll do The Prestige. We've referenced that film quite a bit. It'll be Hmm. really interesting to go back and review. I'll be honest, I've seen it a lot. It's been a while since I've watched it, though. So I'm interested to go back and look at it, and particularly look at it in context of, How does it do things similar to this film? How is it different? And, you know, how does it work? And which one ultimately is more satisfying? That'll be an interesting discussion to have with you next time around. Folks, thanks for joining us on this latest edition of Film Strip. You can find more episodes in the archive section of our website, continuousplaypodcast.com slash movies. You can also find links to the Fabish Factor that Kurt hosts, uh, along with a cavalcade of co-hosts talking about a number of different Mm -hmm. topics. uh, You can always find there. You can also find links to our Facebook and Twitter pages. Join Kurt's uh, Fabish Factor page as well. Lots of good film discussion goes on there. Uh, Do encourage you to check it out. You can follow us also on Twitter and leave us a review on iTunes, folks. It helps other people find the podcast. We're looking forward to continuing on with this series, and we hope you will join us along the way as well. Until next time, for Kurt, I'm Jay. Thanks for
1: listening to Filmstrip. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is a property of their respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act Section 504C2, Title 17.